0: You are listening to audio drama in a darker shade at darkerprojects.com. And now our feature presentation.
1: Darker Projects welcomes you to Quantum Retribution. Once you enter, you may never escape.
2: To a precious few it was a paradise. A haven from the hectic pace of the real world. To others, it was a nightmare. Nothing on this quaint island is as it seems beneath the tranquil lull of the ocean and the beautiful gardens. Dr. Nathaniel Lothman carved out a project based on Dr. Sam Beckett's theories on time travel. Hungry for the power to reform history to his own liking, Dr. Lothaman integrated himself into the project and became Lothos. As his staff work to his ultimate goal, their lives are held in the balance. Still vigilant to be who they are in a complex where danger lurks around every corner. Their secrets lie buried and passions rest dormant. But for how long? Last on Quantum Retribution.
3: Aren't the needs of the project more important than the needs of one person?
2: The needs of the project will not come to pass if the needs of each person in this project are not met. I hate this feeling.
4: I hate being a damned invalid. I will sedate you if I need to. Now, I'm only going to tell you this one last time. Calm
2: down. Is there any possibility at all, however slim, that Zoe will ever regain the use of her lower body effects?
4: No, Lothos. Not by human means.
2: Very well. See to it that you get the best of care. cheese and Beckett's stays and just the upper
5: I'm ready for round two. Boy, am I ready. you slipped a disc, drank seawater, eaten a rotten snail? You better calm down there, pard. It'll be in so deep that you'll have to have a shovel to dig yourself out, Alan. Mr. Conroy, if you'd have let me finish. You know, Alan, a good, honest, Easy to get along with Boss is so hard to find. Those kind of guys are few and far between. Trevor, stop while you can. Trevor Conroy doesn't shirk his work.
3: As if insinuating that I do?
2: Oh no, no, not now. Siren is having a diabetic seizure.
4: You're going to be okay. Just lay still for a few moments. What was going on here, Mr. Conroy? She might have overheard something that lit her fuse. another answer like that, Mr. Conroy, and you'll find yourself on the wrong side of a whip. Now wipe that smile off your face and answer me. What was going on here?
1: Who's my competition?
6: You'll find out this evening. I'll be there. Now, for Johanna Royton. My, 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 my.
7: No longer shackled or impeded by the frailties of mere humanity, but being rather, in his opinion, vastly superior in his present form of a quasi-living hybrid supercomputer, Lothos was able to observe and execute countless operations with flawless speed and efficiency as he maintained an uninterrupted vigil over Tala as she slept. With effortless ease, Lothos zoomed in the focus of one of the two cameras affixed high on the walls of Tala's bedroom. Bringing her face into closer, sharper focus, he studied his youngest daughter's sleeping countenance.
2: Ah, my precious daughter, you are as lovely as your mother.
7: From somewhere in the vague and fragmented memories left over from his humanity, Lorthos smiled when Tala sighed and then shifted a bit in her sleep.
2: I know how you wondered wandered through the years, Tala, about your family. Who they were, who were longing to belong. But before you learned of your heritage, your family, I did best and more important that you first learned self-sufficiency and independence. You have made me proud, my child, even in your mistakes and failures. Tala, you have made your father proud. Soon, Tala, very soon we will talk, and you will learn that for which you yearned for these many years. You will know of your heritage. For now, my child, rest.
4: Give me another answer like that, Mr. Conroy, and you'll find yourself on the wrong side of a whip. Now wipe that smile off your face and answer me. What was going on here? To the best of my knowledge, sir, I think she was listening.
5: Eavesdropping at the door when I was talking to Alan McAllister just before he left for the day.
4: Why? What happened to her? She had a diabetic seizure. What? You heard me. Lothos just confirmed that Siren took her medication this morning. She's never missed a dose of insulin since she was put on it. So that means that one of two things happened. Why are you looking at me? I didn't do anything to her. First, she maxed out on sweets, which is extremely unlikely. Or second, she lost her temper. Simeon's got a hair trigger temper to match her father's. And from the time she was diagnosed with diabetes, there have only been a couple of times when something, or someone, has tripped that temper. And both of those times, she had a seizure. Now, Mr. Conroy, exactly what happened here? I'm not taking the rap for something that's half her
5: fault. That's for damn sure. I bumped into her in the cafeteria at breakfast and caused her to drop her tray of food. She took my offer to help clean up the mess, wrong, then basically tried to intimidate me with her position as the new supervisor of this sector. When I didn't kowtow to her, she followed me out into the hall and screamed at me. Go on. When she finally got into her office, she proceeded to try the intimidation again. Not once did I raise my voice to her, Dr. Hugan. I gave her the respect that her position demands. If she got hot over something she heard while eavesdropping on a private conversation, that's her problem.
4: I doubt that it was just a private conversation, now was it, Mr. Conroy? I know how Siren has a way of getting under some people's skin, but that doesn't mean that talking loudly to another person would constitute a private conversation. Would it, Lothos?
2: Your intuition is uncanny, Dr. Hugen.
4: Try again, Mr. Conroy, and this time tell me what you said. Exactly. From the moment that Siren came to the office until now. And I do hope that you answer correctly. I know that Dr. Hugan is one of the few human
5: beings that Lothos trusts. But I am not going to be intimidated, not even
7: by him. Trevor complied with the order. It was a short recitation, and when he finished, he noticed a trace of indecision in Dr. Hugan's eyes. The man's attitude hadn't changed, but there was a bit of difference there. Finally.
5: And that, Dr. Hugan is to the best of my recollection, is every word that she and I said to each other since she got into her office. I'm not saying that she's totally at fault in this matter, but neither am I. She's as much at fault for unprofessional behavior as I am. I don't think I should have to bear the brunt of this whole situation. Silence!
2: I will decide who bears the brunt of the situation as well as who receives correction. Huguen, if Siren is able to stay to continue her work, then she may. You, Mr. Conroy, will finish your shift as well as forfeit your scheduled day off, reporting for work as usual at 7.30 tomorrow morning. Is that clear? Perfectly.
7: Lothos. Though he didn't like how the man had been discussing his older daughter with his fellow office worker, Lothos drew up a memory from his own former life, keenly understanding the man's attitude towards his daughter.
2: Hmm. I have been in your shoes, Mr. Conway, and it was with Siren's mother, Zoe. For the next two weeks, both of you are required to eat lunch and dinner together. You will be pleasant with one another, and if at any time I observe any disrespectfulness displayed by either of you, it will be an hour in correction for that one.
3: Yes, Lothos. Lunch and dinner.
7: Yes, Lothos. Trevor's tone was correct and calm as he responded, and so he steeled himself, deciding that Madame Supervisor would never see anything but that which Lothos had just ordered of both of them. It was from that decision that another was made. It was a decision that the young man knew he might not live to regret. But not even that thought deterred him as he moved around Peter Hugin and looked down into Siren's upturned and unmasked face.
5: If my mom could hear me now, she'd say butter wouldn't melt in my mouth. <gasps> I will escort you to lunch tomorrow,
4: precisely at 12.30, ma'am. Oh, hell, the shit's about to hit the fan.
7: Dr. Hugan dived through the open office door towards Siren, just barely preventing her head from hitting the floor. When he was certain she was breathing normally, Dr. Hugan stood up and marched into the outer office and straight into the
4: face of Trevor Conroy, this time backing the younger man literally into a corner. What possessed you to think that you had to talk directly to her, Mr. Conroy? You were neither asked nor required to do so. Now, thanks to your smart-ass stunt, I have a patient that's just had an anxiety attack, and you'd better hope it's a mild one.
5: <laughs> I may not live to see the next hour, but I'll be damned if you're going to leave that guilt trip on me, Doctor. So what am I supposed to do? Talk to the back of her head or through the paper sack she'll be wearing when we're dining? Is that how it will be? I don't know about you, Doctor, but when I dine with a woman, I like to see her face. All of it. She's nothing special, so why the mask?
7: From the first insolent word out of the technician's mouth, Lothos instantly altered what he had been about to say. And then he heard the rest of what the man had to say about Siren.
2: Enough! From this moment on, there will be no more questions about the mask or about
7: anything. What you have seen
2: was not for your eyes, but make no mistake, Mr. Conroy. I know exactly what it is you're trying to wiggle out of. Your correction is changed. Now, instead of only sharing lunch and dinner with each other, you will spend all of your spare time away from work with Siren for the next two weeks. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. If at any time during that time I hear or observe any sarcasm or disrespect toward the other, The offender will be corrected immediately. I'm probably going to meet my ancestors
5: momentarily. Does that mean I'll share her quarters and her bed too?
7: (gasps) Having made sure that Siren was out of danger and able to continue her duties... Dr. Hugen returned to his office, where he spent an hour dictating further meticulous notes concerning Zoe Malverson's post-surgical care. He also dictated an order for the specialised wheelchair with oxygen bottle attachments that Zoe would need, should she survive. The balance of his shift was taken up with three surgeries scheduled for the afternoon, a gallbladder removal and two required implantation procedures. Changing clothes after the last surgery, Peter checked on the three patients in recovery. Exiting the last patient's room, he gave the duty nurse care instructions for
4: the woman. Standard orders for an implantations procedure. No talking or loud noise in the room for the next 12 hours, and keep the lights dim during that time. After that, quiet talking only in the room, and then only when necessary. When Ms. Royal wakes up, And you're sure she's alert and coherent? If she's hungry, she can have clear fluids for the first six hours.
1: Yes, doctor. Anything else, sir?
4: No. She came through the procedure well, so she should have a quiet night. Uh, Who's on call on the evening shift, Sheila? Dr. Mori. All right. Call him if anything comes up with any of them.
1: You need to get some shut-eye, Dr. Hugin. You've been on duty nearly 12 hours.
4: Is that all? I,
1: uh...
4: Excuse me. I thought it was only dawn to dusk.
7: <laughs> as Peter Hugan walked to the bank of elevators, all he wanted was three things. To get to his quarters and lock the door, take a long hot shower and then crawl into bed and log eight or nine hours of uninterrupted sack time. Yet for as tired as he was, he walked past the bank of elevators, continuing down the long hall to the ICU situated at the opposite end. For him, there was no such thing as leaving the level without checking one more time on his most critical patient at the moment. Even though Zoe Malveson had been nothing less than a royal pain in the ass since their first encounter years before.
3: Yes, Dr. Hugan.
7: How's Dr. Malveson?
3: Dr. Grant is with her at the moment.
7: Why? Because. Because I've got the evening shift
0: in ICU. I just came on duty, and like any doctor who knows which end of the scalpel cuts, I've been making my initial shift assessment of the patients I'll be looking after tonight.
4: Is there a problem with Dr. Malveson?
0: No problems, Peter. So why are you here?
4: Well, seeing as how I spent the better half of my day trying to keep Dr. Malvezan alive, I thought it would be a good idea if I came to check on how her recovery is progressing. Zoe's stable
0: and sleeping quietly. All vital signs normal and steady given her condition. Here, check her chart. See for yourself. Satisfied, Dr. Hugen? Yes. Now that we've got that settled... If it's all right with you, doctor, I'll continue my rounds. Hazel, give me mister Godley's chart.
3: Yes, doctor.
0: Thank you. Good evening, doctor Hugen.
3: Do you want to look at doctor Marison's charts again, doctor Hmm.
4: Oh, uh no, I am just going to take a look at her before I take off. Turning, Peter Hugan entered
7: ICU Unit 2, situated directly across from the nurse's station, moving to stand at the foot of the bed. For several minutes, Dr. Hugan took careful note of the various life support machines attached in some manner to the woman on the bed, presently in a drug-induced slumber. Each lead, each tube, every monitor engaged, the ventilator ceaselessly pumping oxygen into Zoe's severely injured lungs, all of it necessary to her survival. Moving to one side of the bed, Peter studied Zoe's sleeping face. Were he so inclined, Peter would have readily put money down that she would stay alive just despite the man who had shot her. Considering how her life had been so irreparably altered by that man's actions, there was no doubt in his mind that the death of Admiral Albert Calavici was what Zoe Malverson wanted now more than anything in the world. Possibly even more than the ability to walk again.
4: Finally, Peter exited ICU Unit two. Call me for condition worsens, Hazel.
1: I will, Doctor Hugan. Good night.
7: Only when he was standing in his shower being pummeled by the sharp needle-like spray of hot water did Peter Huguen at last begin to relax. A short time later he emerged from the shower, toweled off and returned to his bedroom. to see. It was one thing to have to work all hours of the night in her interim job as a logistic aide while waiting to be called up for a leap, but for Joanna Royden it was absolutely another to have someone ringing her doorbell at 7.30 in the morning.
3: all right, just a minute.
7: Climbing out of bed, she ran her hands through her long brown hair as her silky red nightgown slipped back down her legs. The soft material of her nightgown fluttered as she padded toward the door of her quarters. During the short trek, one of the gown's spaghetti straps slipped down her arm, causing the lace-trimmed bodice to dip enticingly lower and exposing a bit more of her cleavage.
6: Joanna, I hope I didn't catch you in the middle of...
3: Something. Mm, you did. Dreams of you, Tims. What can I do for you?
6: Invite me in and lock the door. Ooh, sweet Aphrodite.
7: Meeting Joanna's dark eyes again, Tim saw that in spite of the sleepiness still in those dark orbs, Joanna knew pretty much what he was thinking. Forcing himself to focus again on the point of his early morning call, He watched the sleepiness fade from Joanna's eyes.
6: Ahem. During her current leap, Dr. Malvison was shot in the back. What? She's had surgery and is in the ICU now, but it's highly unlikely she'll ever leap or observe again.
7: When Joanna straightened up suddenly, the movement caused the bodice of her red silk nightgown to shift minutely, tantalizingly downward.
6: Oh, jeez. Oh, just another half inch...
7: Where women were concerned, Thames was always the first to admit that he wasn't the strongest of men when it came to Will. That point was proven as he battled what he wanted with what he had to do. What he had to do won.
6: Lothos has charged me with finding a new senior leaper and senior observer. You wouldn't be interested, would you?
7: There was no way Joanna didn't notice the way that Thames looked her up and down. However, when he came straight out with the reason for his early morning visit and she immediately came up from her lounging position against the doorjamb, she felt her nightgown shift but didn't care. If it should happen to slip off right there in front of him, it wouldn't have mattered to her. He had her attention and nothing else mattered.
3: Any leaper would be extremely interested in such a position, sir. Name the time, the place, the game, and I will be there. Thank you, sir, for thinking of me.
7: Thames knew all the superior-ranked junior leapers, having had to review each one's record from time to time, especially after completion of a leap for the purpose of rating his or her performance and level of success. Joanna Royden, he knew, was the only one of the currently superior-ranked junior leapers who had achieved her rank of superior purely on her own merits.
6: Understand this clearly, Joanna. This is not a temporary fill-in assignment. This is for all the marvels. If you win this competition, you're going to step into Zoe Malvison's boots. And girl, you better realize, you better know right now, that those are some big boots to fill. I understand, sir. There's no punches going to be pulled in this competition tonight. Are you up for it? Are you ready to do whatever it takes to succeed, to win?
3: Like I said, Tims, just tell me when, where, and what time. I will be there. You can count on it.
6: Okay. Be in the lecture hall on level 10 at 7 o'clock tonight. If you're so much as a second late, it'll count against you. Tonight, everything counts. It's all or nothing time, sweet cheeks.
3: No punches pulled? Not one. All or nothing? Just try to keep me away, Tims.
7: They stood there, observer and candidate, for several long moments before each at last took a step back, Joanna letting her eyes roam slightly over Thames's body.
3: You never know when you might get to feel something other than your shoes, Thames. See it nigh.
7: When Joanna had stepped up to him, Thames made no pretense of not looking down at her chest. Seeing the not-quite-sheer silk of her gown quiver with each breath she took. He began to wonder if she was the right superior-ranked junior leaper to have chosen to test against Vaughn Ricard. Then he looked up and saw in the delightfully curvaceous brunette's eyes that she knew exactly what she was doing.
6: Damn it, she's playing me like a concertmaster with a Stradivarius. Joanna, don't promise what you can't deliver. I always keep my
3: promises, Tims. Always. It's if you get a promise that you may want to watch out for.
7: At 6.40pm, Lothos observed Thames make his way to the lecture hall and enter, his steps echoing in the large room as he walked to the centre and assumed a stance to wait. After a few moments, Joanna entered the lecture hall, more than a little pleased to find it empty except for Thames. Seeing Thames turn his head toward her, she let a small smile appear on her face as she moved toward the middle of the room. Coming about ten feet from him, she stopped and stood at attention. When the elevator doors opened on the tenth level, Vaughan stepped out and headed down the long main corridor to the lecture hall, directly ahead of him. Reaching the double doors, he opened one quietly and stepped inside. Though he didn't allow it to show on his face, Vaughan was more than a little pissed to see that his opponent was already standing off to Thames's left. Seeing that his opponent was none other than Joanna Royden just made him all the more determined to win this competition. Approaching Thames from the right, like Joanna, he stopped ten feet from him and came to attention. Turning his head slightly, he slid a look at her. Anyone looking at them would have clearly seen the determination in both competitors' gazes.
3: Damn, he's not only strong but determined as well. I should
1: have expected
3: as much. But then again, he also thinks too highly of himself. That could be
1: his downfall. I don't know what Thames was thinking, Joanna. But you're out of your league. Oh, you're good enough for the simple leaps. But there's only one leaper good enough to step into Zoe Malvison's boots. Me. Don't get between me and what's meant to be mine, Joanna. You'll regret it if you...
7: At last Lothos' voice filled the lecture hall, uttering one word. Time.
1: Retribution, Episode 5 Challenges. Featured in this episode were Steven Anderson as Tims, David Alt as Lothos and the Announcer, Jim Barber as Dr. Peter Hugan, Mark Bruzee as Dr. Edward Grant, Robin Carlisle as Joanna Royden, MJ Cogburn as Siren Lothaman, Shane Harris as Trevor Conroy, Mark Kalita as Vaughn Rickard Laura Post as Sheila Welch, and Tom Davis as the production announcer. Written and produced by M.J. Cogburn and C.E. Krawek. Post-production by M.J. Cogburn. Executive producer for Darker Projects is Eric Busby. Theme music is available for download at sounddogs.com. Other music composed and performed by Richard Owens and Kevin McLeod. This has been a Darker Projects production.